Next up, a brand new episode of Double Feature. Well, well, well. Thank you for calling Michael's phone. Uh, hi, it's Eric. I couldn't come to the phone right now. I'll stop Please it. Please leave a message. <laughs> You're not getting out of talking about these movies. <laughs> this is your fucking idea. This is my idea. One of them is, but only because you picked like a very strange. <laughs> you had a very strange request, so I. I a just strange took request. A, you had a strange request, so I I took a stab at um at a. Oh my god! You're um. What the fucking hell? Who is two one two? I shouldn't read this on the on the air. This uh, it literally started calling another phone while. Uh, what a clusterfuck! You almost got out of it, but alas, I figured out how my phone works. <laughs> um, should we? I think I think the gag's funnier if we start with Lolita. I don't know. Great. Yeah. No, we'll <laughs> right. talk about Lolita, but not Lolita. Lolita. We're talking about the sexy Lolita from 1997. Well, I thought this was this was pretty funny because uh, it just it struck me as like. I don't know that Michael wants to talk about the Kubrick Lolita, but if I gave him some weird Lolita from 1997, he might be in. It's super weird because I definitely have so... I mean, you know, I could obviously do a show on Kubrick Lolita if we were to go back and watch it. Um, But I hadn't really... I wasn't familiar with this one. I sat down and watched it, and I was looking into... I don't remember the director's name. Um, Adrian Lin, I believe. Adrian Lin, that's right. Um, but the thing that I think is really funny about it is uh, uh, Adrian Lin did like hella, hella erotic thrillers. Oh, yeah. And like, man, like <laughs> if you told me that somebody was going to make an erotic thriller version of Lolita, dude, I would have seen this so long ago. And that's what I mean, like, I'm just going to I'll show my hand at the beginning of this conversation. That's what this is to me. <laughs> it's like it's not even like. Like, the first one is like, oh, what if it, hmm, maybe that's a predicament that a grown man would be. This movie is like, man, this is some sexy shit that this guy's found himself in. Well, never has there been more of a time to have a conversation of, like, you know, we've always rolled our eyes at this on the show of, oh, the book is better than the movie. The age-old, mm-hmm. you know, comparison of, two fucking mediums that can't possibly be the same. Right. And so rarely have I ever wanted to take that up, and really not here either, except to say that Lolita as a work of fiction is such a fascinating novel to me, and a lot of the elements that are fascinating can only be kind of like fucked with in movies. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole thing about Lolita is that it is a unreliable narrator novel wherein this pedophile, and I mean, we can be very modern about this. People in in literary circles don't like this, but this rapist of a child Mm -hmm. is telling you his story after being captured and trying to make this like a little bit of an appeal to his humanity. He's a little bit of a show-off. For people who haven't read Lolita, I think the best way to think about him as a character is he reminds me a lot of like a Hannibal Lecter type, Mm -hmm. especially like TV's Hannibal, Mm -hmm. you know, 
He's, uh, he has this way of carrying himself that's sort of like, um, I'm going to tell you my, my story about my crimes, but also I'm an American culture critic because I'm, I'm used to how nice things were in France. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's very sharp and oddly very funny. And, you know, the Kubrick version is also, like, you know, very funny, but not, uh, you know, it has to kind of, like, dance around some of the really the evil of the character. Right. So, you know, if, if you kind of, if you say, all right, I've got this book, and the book is going to be written from the perspective of somebody who's committing a crime against fucking humanity, just one of the worst things we can think of, mm-hmm. and I'm going to let him tell this unreliable narrator tale, you have all these literary sort of, like, um, all this literary dancing you can do. Let me give you an example. In this movie, his wife finally finds out what's going on, right? Right. And mm-hmm. she starts writing a letter. And in, in basically, you know, too few seconds for it to even make sense, he gets a phone call. He's like taken away from having an argument with her where she just found out. You know, this is like what sets mm-hmm. a lot of the movie on its course of events. She just found out that he's lusting after her daughter and writing about it in this diary. Uh, and what's already funny is like, she's not really so concerned about that as much as that he called her a bunch of names. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is what you really think about me, right? Like, <laughs> oh, you think I'm a fat, ugly pig. Right. Also, my daughter's a brat, you know? <laughs> like, so not very concerned with that element of it. And they have this argument, and just as he's setting down to take an, oh, my God, I've been found out, he gets a phone call saying his wife's dead. Ed walks into the other room, Ed is like, um, getting a call saying you're dead and can't find his wife, and he goes outside, and she's been run over by a car. Yeah. Now, this is kind of a wild plot turn, and even the delivery of it is kind of, you know what I mean? It's right. like the car basically all but runs through their house to eliminate the the next uh, <laughs> thing that could be in his way. You know, oh, yeah, no, I've been foil. found yeah. out. Yeah. And yeah. before he even mm-hmm. finishes the sentence, like a train busts through the living room and squashes her. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like in the movie, this is just sort of like weird. But it probably happens that way because you can't believe what he's saying, you know. Right, right. Or that it doesn't quite, you know, there's just some more poetry to it, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so I, I lay all that groundwork just to say what's so crazy about the film is it is one thing to write a book from the perspective of a pedophile and have the book kind of be one of these, you know, clockwork orange, fight club, right. fucking sure. less than zero, American psycho, you know. Mm-hmm. One of this great line of kind of like unreliable narrator isn't even necessarily it, but where the narrator's like moral code is just so fucked that you have to call everything into question. It's one thing to do that. It is another thing to make a movie about it, and then you have this new question. So whose perspective is the movie from? That's true, actually, yeah. <laughs> You tell me what you think about this, right? So, like, books, you can get away with a lot in a book. As soon as someone talks about banning a book, you're like, well, that's just a blanket, you know. We all know not to ban books, no matter what they say. Mm -hmm. The Anarchist Cookbook, literally, you're like, don't ban this, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. There could be a book on how to put a bomb in your living room, and you're like, don't ban that, though. Mm -hmm. But a movie, 
a movie comes along and now you have all these filmmaking tools. Right. Now, when you watch Kubrick's Lolita, the character is kind of not a buffoon. That's not the right word. But you know you're sort of laughing at the situation in him. Right. This Lolita is like, well, if the book is written from the perspective of the pedophile to tell his story his way, then certainly the movie must be shot from the perspective of the pedophile the way he would like the movie to be made. Right, right. So it has to be championing and defending him. Uh, But then when you do that, yeah, that becomes extremely difficult because then what ends up happening is then it feels like the people who made the movie are actually aligning with that guy. Or yeah, like as a work of art, imagine Morricone, right? Right. You're making the score to this movie. Like Morricone, how does he score the movie? Yeah, is it a is it a horrifying score? A tense score? Is it a you know? This isn't like uh, you couldn't cut an A twenty four trailer to the score. Scores are like a like a hot romantic thriller, <laughs> right? So like, does this read insane to you, or does it read like, oh, obviously that's exactly what you do here? No, I mean, I think that the whole the whole of this movie is that's that goes back to what I was saying about like the erotic thriller nature of this movie. Right. Because like when you talk about basic instincts or you talk about fatal attraction or I'm pretty sure Adrian Lynn did fatal attraction and indecent proposal or one or the other. I'm pretty sure those are two different movies. Yeah. And when you talk about those movies, indecent proposal is a very interesting point to parallel this because in decent proposal i don't know if you're aware so let me bring you up to speed it's about this proposal that's rather indecent where a wealthy dude uh meets uh, a younger couple in probably vegas or maybe atlantic city and uh and they're like rolling the dice and playing the craps and then he goes hey hey, yo i want to fuck your wife for like a million dollars and they're like what and that's the indecent proposal so, but that, when you talk about like the context and the minutia and the, the sort of like pieces of that, that idea, you don't have to complicate it by making one of the characters fucking 14 because then, then it immediately like the, the, to decide whether or not his proposal is indecent because those two characters are in a relate, nobody's having that conversation once the character's 14. And and the only, and the other thing too is like this was 1997. Lolita's a book from way before then, and I think even in the fucking 25 years since this movie came out, the age of consent has only even gotten older. Yeah, it was the mid 50s when the book came out, right? And you know, Lolita's even younger in the book. Sure. Talking about indecent proposal. This is kind of a weird, like, this movie definitely masquerades in this genre. When you go, like, okay, well, what genre is this movie? You know, it's talking about something that it isn't really talking about on the surface or or maybe a couple things. And so, like, the work that it's doing isn't the normal work that a erotic thriller would be doing. Mm-hmm. But it sort of arrives mm-hmm. at erotic thriller because it asks itself the question, like, all right, if we did this sincerely... What kind of movie would it sort of be? Or I think it's, you know, maybe a little bit like adventure romance or I don't know. Erotic thriller is like so sleazy. And I think just because of the subject matter, that's kind of where it falls. Yeah. But talking about Indecent Proposal, 
you know, that's one specifically. When the book came out, it's the original story of Lolita is basically a comedy of manners meets erotica. Those are mm-hmm. kind of like the genres of, of fiction. And, you know, we have a couple comedy of manners kind of movies. Um, I'm thinking of something like uh, The Discreet Charm, uh, Exterminating Angel. I don't know. I'm failing to think of like a real, real straight on one. Metropolitan might be something more recent. <laughs> I was going to say, you need to go watch yeah. Metropolitan again. A really indecent proposal might be right on the money. Yeah, so it's sort of like, it's, and the Kubrick movie does this, but it's sort of like, um, oh, wouldn't it be, it's almost like a Three Stooges routine or something, you know? Wouldn't it be such a predicament if this guy had to live at this house and there was a young daughter there and he just so happened to be a pedophile? Oh, the many, you know, the many predicaments that might ensue. And that ends up being a little bit like Indecent Proposal in that that movie is also, the whole, the whole hook of it is almost this comedy of manners thing. You know, the word proposal sounds so um, sophisticated. Indecent Proposal is about a man who asks a couple to use the wrong spoon. Yeah. <laughs> I think the story is entirely about Jeremy Irons' character. The other characters might as well be imagined. And, you know, that's kind of what I mean when I say it's an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole conceit... There's a refrain they use very often in the book, which is, um, you know, he talks about my forever Lolita or something to that effect. And it really reinforces that Lolita is not even a... a I don't want to say practically speaking she's not a real person, but like she is an idea. Right. You know, if we took this at face value like it was um, more of a, a typical romance movie, uh, you know, without the, the cruelty and the crime to it, mm-hmm. then this would be a film about somebody who wants to be with their, like, their true love or their whatever. They, they have this ideal partner in mind. He wants to run away with her. He wants to take her on the road. He, he never wants this to stop. The moment where they get away, that's like it. He's made it. Sure. And everything else is a complication onto that. But when you think about this phrase that's used, my forever Lolita, he will go through and talk a lot, not explaining away his actions, but really kind of like explaining to the audience as if they've never heard of what a pedophile is or trying to get across his particular ideology about this. And from Lolita, very notoriously, comes the phrase nymphet. So he'll kind of define that and the age range. Uh, And like I said, much younger even than the movie. Mm -hmm. But by definition, it's an impossibility. She ages out of it. Sure. So within two years or whatever, she's not going to be in the age bracket that fits his definition. So the idea of his forever Lolita is uh, a literal impossibility. He's chasing a thing that uh, can't even really exist. And by the time you see him 
you know, at the end of the movie, trying to get her to come back with him, she's not only three years older and no longer the person that he's spent this whole time obsessing over, but also, like, literally going to be a mother, right? I mean, couldn't be further from uh, what we started talking about at the beginning in his, like, moments of desperation in that scene. Right. I think when we have this idea of, like, okay, so you've adapted it and you choose to do it in this way and you choose to uh, to make the, the very difficult, uh, maybe even dubious decision to let the whole movie be from his sort of romantic point of view, like, it is a trade-off. Sure. What you lose is this kind of shade of the story that's about a guy, you know, telling on himself. Mm-hmm. Complete in his in his confession is uh, is all of this wit and this poetry, and you know that's what makes reading it funny. That's where a lot of the satire comes in. His perspective, like he a warped individual, and then his perspective on things, but also that um, there's a sort of like a like a notes from the underground kind of. Mm-hmm. He tries to pretend he's better or more classy than he really is. That's what I mean when I say, like, he's telling on himself. Yeah. You know, we don't really get that in the movie, this sort of thing where he's making an astute observation about how the world works, how some idiot character is, what they've, what they've completely underestimated, all the while we're sitting there, like, actually mocking the person, you know, explaining this to us. So we lose some of that when, when there's actors that are breathing life into these other characters and we get endeared to the characters and they have more like their own story. But when I say it cuts both ways, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, so there's those obvious kind of pitfalls. You humanize Lolita and she's not a figment anymore and that cuts down that, that sort of satirical element. We're less laughing at him and more just being creeped out by all of this. But making Lolita more human, I mean, one cool thing about it is now you can watch this whole story from her perspective. Sure. Well, she's not just an object. Yeah. Right. You can't really do that from an object. Like, you can now watch this and root for her, which I don't think you can do the other way. Right. Uh, not, not really in, a, like, a concrete way. Right. You can really spend time thinking about, like, what she's trying to get out of situations. Um, there's part of this that's kind of like, like a place like Hard Candy or something now, you know? Sure. Yeah. You get scenes like when uh, she's trying to use sexual favors to get a raise in her allowance. Or, I mean, ultimately, she goes somewhere else. She gets away. And in some ways, it, it makes it... Uh, like a bigger punch when he finds her again because you get this sense that she's been a whole person, had this whole other story, and that, even for his character, that's a bigger blow to him when you see that he's basically a footnote in her story, mm-hmm. right? Right. That all this stuff that we've experienced as an audience where we thought this was really like the main story. I mean, I don't want to say she doesn't even remember that, but it was like not important or barely even notable compared to like a whole thing we didn't experience. 
The other thing that I think is really interesting about this movie is that I feel like the story insulates itself in a in a very easy way by being like, yeah, I mean, this guy's a pedophile and a, and a statutory rapist and a, and a monster and a groomer, but he's not like the actual kind of pedophile and monster and groomer and statutory rapist. That's this motherfucker over here. Yeah, well, and that, that's the guy that Lolita feels like she had the epic romance with, too. And when we see him, you know, again, this is part of what I feel like is like a little unreliable, right? She's saying the words. This is all, I mean, the deeper thing of Lolita is you could look at it and really think about fascism. You could think about, um, you know, the thing they said about the Trump administration, which was like judge them by their actions, not their words or whatever. Sure. Like, there's a lot of that, right? Mm-hmm. We have experience in that scene of, like, the facts of the matter is Lolita said the sentence, oh, that guy was my only true love. And the narrator will tell us that because he's trying to show how decimating the scene was. So that's an important detail for him to leave in. But when he confronts the other guy, that guy is represented as just like a miserable, lifeless piece of tree. He's like so fucked up that uh, you, a person could never love him. Even if he wasn't a monster, he's not even a human. He's just like some greasy, slobbering, just uh, ooze of, <laughs> you know, it's disgusting. And so narratively, that doesn't, like, something is, is not being told accurately to us there. Which is, you know, it's subtle, but yeah, that's what it's doing. At the end of the movie where he, like, kills that other guy, he's basically like, this guy's terrible. Can you, can you believe what he's doing to these girls, what he's done? Awful. What an awful pedophile. Not me, though. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm a proper pedophile. I'm, I'm, I'm just a man, a man with a certain, a certain preference, that's all. Yeah, well, that's not the background the narrator wants to present. He wants to be this sophisticated man. He's from Europe. He's mm-hmm. from France. Mm-hmm. He has these distinguished tastes. And, again, when we look at, like, the facts of the matter versus what he tells us, he's slumming it for, for $20 a month at this house, uh, which I don't really know what $20 meant back then, but... You know, at the very least, he's he's unemployable. Like, he never works through the whole movie. Sure. He's just kind of, like, jobless and, and walking into situations and going, oh, I have my studies, I have my work and my studies. But he never does anything. He even tells Lolita at one point that, oh, well, look, we're going to have to stay in the same room because that's something people do to save money sometimes. It's like this rare where he's like reaching for a bit of truth to weave this otherwise illegitimate kind of story for her. And yeah, so when we see them face off at the end, I mean, they're, they're the fucking same, but you see how different they are in, in what he pretends. I, it, I sort of mentioned it earlier, but like, as time goes on, and this is, I'm not, I'm not saying this in a negative way. I'm just saying this matter of factly. Uh, as time, time, as 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 humanity progresses, we are less and less kind to uh, people who take advantage of children sexually. Go figure. It's like one of the few things that I think we all agree on. Um, 
And, and so like, I just, I imagine that this guy in 2022, if you were to make a 2022 version of Lolita, this motherfucker's on like 4chan threads and like little creepy, like Nambla, like blogs and shit, like pontificating how that it's not, it's not, he's not creating victims. It's just a, you know, it's just it's just a preference. It's just, you know, it's just how I am and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, I feel like it's one of the few stories that you can't, you couldn't modernize anymore because I feel like we've, we've really reached a plateau in, in, in the, in the human, in the human consciousness where like this dude couldn't even get three steps outside his house without getting his fucking throat slit, you know? Well, this is why um, I originally read Lolita, is because I couldn't fucking believe it existed. Yeah, every once in a while I would hear about it, and the fact that everybody in the room wouldn't immediately condemn it, I was just like, I mean, I sort of felt like the person who, who goes, how does this exist? How are we allowing this movie to exist? Doesn't it age poorly? Do we think about it differently today? And before I really knew what Lolita was, I guess I was just taken aback by like not I couldn't believe that it was real that it was a real book that anyone ever wrote this and that it's considered like classic literature and I had to know what the fuck really is it yeah and I mean I think that's you know that's been true since the book came out is people sort of need to know what the the band risque thing is Mm -hmm. and that happened again for this movie to know there's like a Jeremy Irons uh, smuttier version or whatever, mm-hmm. the fucked up lens version of the movie. Yeah. Which I can't imagine coming out today. You know, I can't imagine, like, I don't know how you market this if it doesn't already exist. Um, I think it's, yeah. Lolita is a story we can talk about or somebody could go, oh, uh, we're, we're, what are you filming today? We're making a 97 version of Lolita. Like, you can do that, and people will work on it because they're like, oh, like the Kubrick film, you know, Kubrick. <laughs> like the piece of classic literature. Yeah. And so how do you market Lolita? You market it as, uh, like they did Naked Lunch, you know, you market it as uh, this unbelievable thing is coming back to the screen in yet another way. Or you market it as Lolita. You've heard of that. That's something you've heard of. Shouldn't you see this? And I think that's kind of how you do it. I don't think you could just fresh come up with this story today. Like, I don't have any clue what you put on the poster of that or how you um, even pitch another adaptation of that today. It seems nuts to me. Yeah. All right, let me check out this octopus movie. I'll call you back. Looking for more double feature? Find nearly thousands of episodes at patreon.com forward slash double feature. Well, hello. There you go. Off to the races. I have returned from the octopus. Yeah, good. So did you say that you came from the octopus? Is that what you meant to say? I, uh, I'm turning you down in my, I didn't know you were going to be so explicit. I have to turn you down in my headphones. Um, Sorry. yeah. How, how do we talk about this movie? What do we, well, <laughs> I mean, do we, um, do we, you can't say address the elephant in the room, I guess. Right. 
that wouldn't be the right metaphor to use. No, I mean, so let's let's start let's start by just discussing the fact that this is this is coming right right hot off the heels of Lolita, which is a movie about um, don't you can't even say hot off the heels of Lolita. Having, having it's a movie about having a desire to um, fuck a living thing that you probably should know better than trying to fuck. Can we also not use the second person for this? I just feel like one. Yeah, sorry. Um, so this is this is uh, this is my octopus teacher. So you were watching this movie and you were thinking, you know, this movie doesn't feel enough like he wants to fuck the octopus. Maybe if we put it with Lolita, it'll bring out some of that subtext, some of that rich subtext, something like that. I mean, I think I think really what ends up what ends up really playing for me after the 97 Lolita is the fact that I feel like as we sort of talked about Jeremy Irons character, like pontificating why it's okay and why he's sort of the, um, why he's sort of like the refined pedophile, a pedophile. Um, I think <laughs> was, that, was that French? Yeah. I think, uh, I think that it, it really brings out the sort of like, abject rationalization that the documentarian seems to like keep hammering at in this movie because so i mean just to just like right off the bat the thing about this movie that i think is super weird and this is something i've started doing in my everyday life too just because i think it's really funny but he's basically like you know we all sit down you sat down i sit down we all sit down going ah we're gonna learn about we're going to learn about an octopus and we're going to learn from an octopus. Right. Mm-hmm. Great. We're going to, that's what, that's what we know. We're going to, octop- we're going to find out that octopuses are intelligent and we're going to learn something from them today. And the dude goes, yeah. So, uh, I was like not really having a good time with my wife and family. And I went out to this shack by the ocean and I was like, okay, so here's the thing is don't open with that because everything else is now through the lens of you can't get it up at home and you went to a cabin about it. It's it, like it's I, every pretty day, funny the the inroads to this because it like it kind of paints a movie you could have, but right. it, it like kind of tries to um, I don't know. It opens by going, yeah, I was having some family problems. I had to you know I had to like quit my job, run away from society, and join the octopus. Right. And it has this very strange setup of what if I did that every day? It's like, yeah, you would have a real problem then. Yes, we would all know. <laughs> that you, like, it's presented like this revelation, like that's insane. A man can't commune with an octopus every day. Every right. What about the weekend? Right. Yeah, right. so it's just kind of, yeah. yeah, it's kind of humorous. But I do think it, it sets up this uh, this idea of like, I think a more honest pitch of the movie might be something like, you know, a reverse pet, right? Like, you go and you get... We know a lot about... Okay, we know a lot about cats and dogs because they're domesticated. Right. So, you know, think about it... Um, think about it like like data. Yeah. There's just millions, billions maybe, of people with dogs just staring at them all day, just hanging yeah, out... Yeah staring at it, being like, what's this dog do? So we know all sorts of quirks of pet behavior. Sure. But, you know, this octopus, 
not nearly as many people have just hung out with it every day. Maybe you'll learn something. So you can't just go get the octopus and take it to your house. You know, right? Because your wife's there, and you have trouble. You're having trouble. <laughs> marital right, issue yeah. you don't want the you octopus to know you're home. already married that's awkward yeah <laughs> yeah right so it, it's complicated at home though octopus you don't understand yeah <laughs> yeah so you know he as a documentarian i mean he does bring that up a couple of times that he he tries not to intervene and it's hard mm-hmm. so there is this this idea like he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would go steal the octopus and put it in a fucking tank right in his house Sure. Or he did and couldn't keep it alive for more than a week, so that documentary had to you know, <laughs> get canceled. So he goes. So it's it's basically like I want to domesticate an octopus, but that's mm-hmm. not allowed. So right. I will just go visit the octopus right. every day. Well, He's like a so child going to a zoo. That's the thing. No, so that's the thing, right? Is is when you say it's like a reverse pet thing. I think what you what you didn't, what you inadvertently alluded to is that he's like, well, I can't bring the octopus home to my house, so I'm just going to be the octopus's pet at her house. Right. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to go there and she can just stare at me while she does whatever actual business she has to do. Because I don't have shit to do. Right, I'm just yeah. going to float around and look at an octopus the same way everyone's dog mostly just like naps and is frightened by its own ass. <laughs> So he's like essentially doing the human version. He's like, I'm just going to float around and just stare at you until it's feeding time. Yeah. And uh, the octopus is like, that's all well and good. I have like a whole lot to do, my guy. So like you're just, you're just going to have to like chill. Yeah, well, it starts with this mystery too. So I do think like if the movie had a single opportunity to try to be compelling, to try to get you on the side of like here's here, there's a, a world out there we don't understand – Mm-hmm. And here's why I was, um, I don't know what the word is, like enraptured or whatever with it, right? Is that a word? Mm-hmm. Is that, does that mean what I think it does? It, it, it does. It's just not like quite sexually elusive enough. So <laughs> right, okay. right. if you want to go back and pick a different word, that's okay. Yeah. So he goes down there and he sees this weird, he doesn't even know it's a creature yet. He sees like a, a strange pile of shells. Right. And as a person who is watching this movie on a, a gag because I couldn't just watch Lolita twice for the show, mm-hmm. I didn't know that I would care at all about, uh, you know, an octopus. Mm-hmm. And when you present to me this strange, chaotic pile of shells and it's alive, like, that's a pretty interesting mystery to me. Sure. I want to know what the fuck is going on with that. And, you know, it's nice, obviously, that it comes back to it in the end and maybe a little too convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing that octopus showed, uh, showed him the trick right before it died. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or maybe the octopus lives. No spoilers in the show. Yeah, that's true. You can't. You I mean, can't. The, I, he does set it up when he's like, the octopus only lives a year. Anyways, I'm going to visit this octopus every day for a year. Right. Wait a second. <laughs> Right. Hope his math worked out well. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is for for all of the jokes, the low hanging fruit to mock this movie. It is an extraordinary sort of thing. And I mean, this is this is coming from somebody who will watch literally everything David Attenborough ever does. I'll just watch. 
Oh yeah. He's like David. It's like David Attenborough does like an eight part series on like sand. I'm like, yeah. Can't wait till next week's installment of the David Attenborough sand doc. David Attenborough is an interesting comparison too, because he is sort of, um, you know, the master of this idea with nature documentaries of using a human to bring people to nature. Right. To help, um, you know, I talk about this with photography to uh, people all the time, that if you put a human being in a landscape photo, it, it changes the way people perceive the landscape. Right. You know, just by adding a human to an environment. There is, and, and not just, a, you know, this is something I think about because I am not the type of person who puts on a lot of octopus documentaries. Mm-hmm. But, you know, David Attenborough, if it's not enough for you to just care about the planet, if it's not enough for you to be curious or interested in Earth, then David Attenborough, as your guide, you know, you can get interested in him. You can see the world the way he sees it. He provides that perspective. And, you know, he can get you excited in a way that maybe, or or make you care or whatever emotion it is in a way that maybe you couldn't just on your own. And I think this is, uh, especially with nature documentaries, because you kind of got to figure out, like, what level are you talking to your audience at? How much do you expect your audience to know about an octopus before they come to this documentary? And this is really present like this is a pretty broad documentary, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is you are not a marine biologist when you watch this documentary. Right. You know, you you are more likely to have had problems with your wife and kid than to be a marine biologist. That's basically That's the the template the movie's setting yeah. up. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're doing all this discovery through this guy's eyes. And we're, um, we're kind of, I mean, you know, this was all new information to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is all new information to everybody. Right. But he goes and explores what, what he, uh, I like the, the term he used, you know, he'll talk about it like the underwater jungle. Mm-hmm. And sets up this idea of there are a lot of things down there that we don't know about. Right. And not to say that he is the, you know, the leading expert either, because there's definitely a scene where he's basically like, yeah, so I went on Wikipedia and it didn't say any of this stuff about this octopus. Right. So I don't know if anybody right. knows about this or what. And they kind of just leave it at that, which mm-hmm. I think is really funny. So I don't know how much of this movie it would be. I'd be really curious to watch this with somebody who knows a lot. And just see if they're rolling their eyes the whole time, being like, yeah, we all know. We all know about the trick with the shells. Right. Because I'm sitting here and I'm going, oh, yeah, put your shells over your head. That's a pretty good move. Very yeah, clever. Right. So, right. so you know, I'm, I'm coming at it from that. It picked the right uh, barrier to entry yeah. for me. I would by no means classify myself as an octopus expert, but I am definitely like very nature documentary saturated Mm. to the point where like i'm i'm at the point now there are there are nature documentaries and there are there are people who are less familiar with them where they'll just be like oh man this is this is great look the deers are doing 
cute weird deer stuff and i'm like i don't care about that i've seen i've seen enough of that i've read enough of that to the point where like i want david attenborough or i want some like bizarrely compelling nature doc right like i need i need like david attenborough blue planet 2 or grizzly man and nothing in between yeah. So I sit down to my octopus teacher with that baggage with like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen enough of these. I'm, I'll bet you, I'll bet you this is some boring shit where it's like an octopus who like, you know, grows its tentacle back or and mm-hmm. that it goes out the window quick. I mean, it's, I, and I, and I'm not even sure other than, you know, armor shells or whatever. I'm not even sure I could tell you I learned anything that I didn't at least think I knew, but that didn't, mean that i like because i guess that's the point right is like i don't think that that's what i was saying at the beginning like while the movie is called my octopus teacher like i don't necessarily feel like i was cheated out of learning about the biology of an octopus you know what i mean yes that's like sort of the thing to me that i that i'm like okay so like i didn't I, i couldn't write a thesis on octopus behavior now but I, I feel like I learned something maybe about myself or about humans or about the natural world at large. Definitely about this guy, I learned some stuff. And so I feel like I feel like the uh, the octopus of it all is 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 oh man, never mind. The octopus the octopus of it all is uh, oh my, I can't say that either. Fuck. Which I'll let you pick. Should I say it was a red herring or a bait and switch? Mm. I don't like either of those, no. Yeah, all right. So we'll just move on. You didn't (laughs) quite realize how many fish metaphors you had loaded. I'm sorry, yeah. Well, I think the best angle of the film, which may or may not be true, again, because I don't know, but the the read of the movie that I think is clever is that by spending every day, you know, an entire year daily with a single creature like this, not just with the, the octopuses, but with a single octopus, mm-hmm. that it will show you part of its world that you don't usually get to see. Right. You know, that that is why, by the time we build to the shark chase, that that is really why we get to see that, is because he's put in the work. So mm-hmm. artistically... You know, I can talk about that. I don't really know if, you know, I, I suppose it doesn't matter, right? Because it's kind of like, well, is that true? Is it not true? Did he get that fucking footage first? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. is the documentary mm-hmm. a lie? I mean, this is something we've talked about with documentaries before. It's, I like to come to a documentary with the story that it's feeding me. And, sure. you know, you walk away from that. And uh, it's not like you you took a scientific course on it, mm-hmm. you know. So you are kind of like accepting it at that. Um, man, I feel like we've been talking about poetry a lot on this show, but at that poetic level, right? Right. So what is this a movie about? It's a movie about this guy who got to see some pretty cool octopus stuff because he hung out with the same octopus every day until it trusted right. him to do stuff. Yeah. Is that really true? I don't know. But that's what it told me it was doing, and you know, good job. And it sold the story, right? It sells yeah, the story yeah, yeah, enough. Yeah, of course, it's got enough octopus footage that I do buy that he was at least near a real octopus. So, yeah, like damn, you know. they cover that. Uh, you know, we were talking before about how you edit this together. Mm-hmm. 
and um, uh, on the on the last show mm-hmm. about how you edit footage together to kind of like tell a certain story, mm-hmm. and the way they cover that shark chase, yeah, it's crazy that they have the footage for it. You know that right. they are able to do basically a chase scene mm-hmm. and a you know and and one where you can follow the action of what's going on which is already like a kind of a hard part of filming action Mm -hmm. you're fucking underwater that he's keeping up with both of them again trickery Mm -hmm. or not you know Mm -hmm. whether it's like multiple things or they're inserting other footage or whatever but they still manage to tell that story right you follow the whole thing and you feel like you have been there for that whole chase Yeah, and I feels think like a stunt that scene. is, yeah, that's the most compelling part of it for me. Yeah, is that if they set up to give you this promise of okay, well, I got to see stuff people don't, you know, whether no one knows about it or no one wrote it on Wikipedia yet or no one you know has ever seen it or most people don't get to see it. I certainly don't get to see it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you promise me that and then you show me them fighting and the octopus riding the sharks back and all of this, you know, it really, that's the kind of stuff that does make me feel like it's delivering on that. This was one of those movies. Is this the first, did you watch it for, for this? Did you watch for it? Cause show, I was like, yes. Hey, let's watch this. Okay. So I watched it because, you know, it came out and everybody's like, wow, that's a pretty good. Plus it was also like the Netflix banner of the day or, you know how they do that shit. And <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, I happened to be sitting there and I'm like, yeah, I'll watch this fucking octopus thing. And uh, I definitely wasn't disappointed, which is weird. I feel like I feel like any other random octopus doc, right? You're probably not going to have a good time. Might have an okay time. Um, but it definitely does feel like, you know, you mentioned the poetry, but it feels like the art and the narrative of this movie really do have a lot more... Uh, tact and 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 storytelling uh about the closest i get to a netflix nature documentary is that scene they cut out of the staircase the true crime doc where uh they hypothesize that maybe the woman wasn't killed by her husband but actually like an owl that just flew in the window in the middle of the night right right that's a real two percenter uh material there so look (laughs) that up if you know what any of those other words mean Right. Um, I do have my tickets to the uh, the Netflix NC seventeen movie coming out in a movie theater. Ooh. Yeah, because we have the Paris Theater here, and it's right. owned by Netflix. So sometimes they'll play the big Netflix movie, which is kind of cool living in New York. That it's like yeah. you get to watch something by a streaming giant that they'll never even put out on Blu-ray. Like it'll be in. Right. Not just a theater, but like a historically cool theater with a, you know, it's, it's I think, the last single screen theater in New York. Damn. And, uh, yeah, so there's a little, there's a little Netflixing that I'll, I'll be doing. You're talking about Cuties too. That's, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the Marilyn Monroe film. All right, that's, <laughs> that's it. We've, this has turned into a Netflix ad. I'm hanging up. Great. It was uh, great talking my... to you, Michael. It, it was, was so good talking. talking. Oh, man. Okay, bye. <laughs> this show brought to you by the executive producers of the Double Feature. 
Arnold Bath would thank the executive producers from the patron, Tom Leonard Kerr, Ross Mahler, Henrik Dinder, Lauren Schulben, Acker, Charles Crawford, Jeremy. If you like the show, help to keep it on the air by joining patreon.com forward slash double feature.